Good to see you. Uh, my name is Joel, if you're new here, and we have teaching from the Bible here at Emmanuel every week. We're looking at the life of David. And in recent weeks, we've seen how a huge rebellion uh, where the nation of Israel really turned on him and turned against him uh, has been brought to an end. This rebellion is finished. The guy that led the rebellion, who happened to be David's son, Absalom, has been dealt with. And last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the kind of recovery of things, David being um, invited back um, to lead. But having got through, it looks like, the other side of this rebellion, we now see things looking like they're going to fall apart all over again. So it's a, it's a, a, a drastic moment, and, and yet there are things in it that will help us to see how disintegration happens and how we can understand its prevention. So let's read from uh, 2 Samuel 19, verses 40, right up to chapter 20 and verse 6. I'll just read to you. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimam went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. And we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. Let's just pray together. Father, we thank you for your kindness in the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for all the ways you've shown mercy and grace. We thank you for the gift of the scriptures that are given to reveal him, to point to him. And we pray, Lord, that you would now help us to see the glory of your son Jesus through this story. And we pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit to see to it, that that we wouldn't be left 
as orphans, Lord, but you would send your spirit to be our guide, to be our teacher, to bring us into deeper knowledge of, Lord, your fatherhood of us and our, our security in you and the, the salvation you've given us through your son, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be strong, to be secure, to be solid, to be built together as your people. And Lord God, to, to serve you more effectively, more faithfully, more fruitfully as a result. I pray every one of us here, from the, the person who's newest in the room, the person watching this on video, the person that feels furthest away from you, to the one that's walked with you for the longest time, I pray each one would hear your voice through the scriptures now we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is uh, kind of Rebellion 2.0. He's, he's been through what looked like the worst kind of situation and it looks like the dust has settled and things are back to normal. But it's, it's, now, it's now happening all over again. It's looking horrifying for David because the nightmare is being uh, kind of repeated for him. And, and it's this situation where the nation is kind of just crumbling. People are splitting People are not hearing each other's heart. People are showing distrust and disharmony. And there's, there's, a, there's a big lack of cohesion. So, so I want us to just try and poke around under the lid, if you like, see what, what's, what's going on behind this. Why, why is this happening? And there's a, there's a few causes I want us to identify, starting with what I'm going to call tribolatry. It starts with tribolatry. Now, uh, you can probably tell I've kind of fused a couple of words here. Idolatry is when we give ourselves in love and worship to things that aren't God. We treat created things as though they are God. We treat the creature as though it's the creator. And we, 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 we pour our hearts out. We give ourselves away in worship to that which we shouldn't worship. Now, we've been doing that as human beings from the beginning. It's our, our great problem. It's our great failing and mistake. And it's led to everything bad ever since. But when I use the word tribolatry, I'm, I'm giving you an example of a particular kind of idolatry. Because one of the things that we are prone to lifting up to a place of rivalry to God replacement of God is our kind of group identity. The pride that we might take in our, our faction, our clique, our family maybe, our clan, our, our ethnicity, our, our nation, our political persuasion or opinion, our, our political party, uh, even maybe some kind of petty difference theologically some particular thing that we believe the Bible teaches that no one else has quite got like we have because they haven't really properly understood it or studied it like us. There are all different ways in which this kind of tribolatry can, can begin to express and assert itself. But it seems to me it's, it's all expressions of the same basic kind of human pride, human vanity. It might be straight up racism just blatant, or it might be something way more subtle, but it's, it's got the same kind of heart behind it, where I'm identifying something in me and my team, if you like, that, that makes me superior to them, that makes me feel aloof from them, that makes me somehow higher up in the food chain. 
and, and I, I get the right and the freedom and the privilege and the luxury of looking down my nose at the other people on lower rungs of the ladder. And, and we've been doing this as an expression of idolatry from the start. The Bible has so much to say about it. And yet here what I see is the classic kind of clever religious, apparently good kind of version of it where we disguise what is essentially just the same old proud tribolatry. We disguise it as a certain kind of genuine appropriate loyalty to, to God or to, to God's king, God's kingdom. See, what you've got here is David, who is God's chosen king, the, the one that God has raised up out of love and care for his people to lead his people like a shepherd leading the sheep. God looks down on his beloved flock, cares for them, and raises up a shepherd, a king, who will lead them kindly and well given them David, and it was a kind gift of God. It really was. He really was that good. He was that kind of leader, that kind of compassionate ruler that they would have always wanted. But at this point of crisis, we're noticing that amongst the flock, there are some who are saying, he's our king more than he's your king. Okay, we're all from the same kind of Israel, but our tribe gets in more than your tribe does. You know, you, you kind of think you're Israel, but we're real Israel. And no, 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 we're real Israel. And it's kind of built on this recent story of rebellion and civil war. So it's like, well, we, we stuck by him when it was hard. No, 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 we stuck by him. And there's more of us than there are of you. You know, there's 10 tribes in the northern tribes of Israel. You're just two little tribes, it's Judah and Benjamin in the south. We're like the tr- proper northern tribes. And this is what's kicking off in those early verses I read to you. Even that phrase in, in verse 42, because the king is our close relative. That's the comeback of the south. You know, he's, he's from Judah. He, hello, David from Judah. He's our guy. He's, we're his tribe. We're his brothers. And so there's this, this real kind of, you know, just different expressions of rivalry. They're trying, to, they're trying to own the king, really, for their own little faction. But here's the thing that's striking. If you just go a few verses later, and it seems like it's happening at the same gathering... I mean, I don't know, you know, it's hard to know exactly how this worked out because it gives you the broad brushstrokes. But it says in verse 1 of chapter 20, there was a worthless man. It's nice, have that on your CV. A worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet, which means he held a press conference. That's what it means. It means he, he gathered. He said, I'm going to make an announcement. Okay, blowing the trumpet. That was their way of saying, okay, big news, big, big. This isn't just any tweet. This is like a big one. This is, I want, I'm going to flip proper drop the mic moment I'm going to really land this on you and he says I we in fact have no portion in David we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse every man to his tents O Israel now this is this is interesting because what happens next is is quite alarming you'd expect after all of the bickering about who are the real David loyalists around here that they would basically <laughs> take Sheba over to a, you know, a woodshed somewhere and see that he doesn't come out again because this is a bad guy. He's worthless. He's turning on the king. He's being he's treasonous. He's not a good guy, obviously. We're, we're the king's men. 
And he's telling us, you know, to, to just forget about the king. But what happens in verse 2? All the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now, what is that about? Well, I think what it reveals is, is that really, when you get into tribolatry, you are inches away from something more sinister, from a full-on rejection of God. Because actually what tribolatry is in its heart, however spiritual you make it look, however much you look like you're trying to say, no, we're true Christians, no, 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 we're, we're the loyal people, no, we're, we're better than them, what you're really saying ultimately is, my confidence is in myself. My confidence is in my people, my nation, my tribe, my colour. And that kind of arrogance is the absolute opposite of worship towards God. It's the absolute opposite of faith in Christ. It's the absolute opposite of humble repentance. It's confidence in the flesh. That's what the Bible calls it. Confidence in the flesh. Confidence in human abilities, human strengths, usually sinful ones. It's, it's self-confidence, tribe confidence, whatever it is, it's miles away from the kind of dependence on God that needs to be shown in Israel at this dark moment. See, God has given them David because he loves them. And not just David, but David's family tree got the promise that God had made to David Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you don't need to go there, but the big story the Bible tells, the big epic saga from cover to cover of the whole Bible is wrapped up in the story of this man, David. He's one of the key players in the whole story of history. David is a massive player because God has said to David, it's going to be from your offspring, from your loins and your family tree. One of your descendants will sit on the throne of the universe forever and ever and ever. Talking about Jesus. So David is God's man. David is, if you want to know God, you need to, you need to know David at this time in history, surely, at this point in the story. But the whole nation, the whole nation, God's nation, David's nation, are now going to turn away. Why? Well, because they really put their confidence, bizarrely, in their tribal identity more than in God's grace, more than in God's kindness. And they became rather impressed with themselves, rather impressed with their nationhood, rather impressed with their, 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 their little split-off group. This happens. This happens in bizarre ways. I mean, really crazy ways. The human heart will use anything to boast in. <laughs> Even the things that you think, how are you going to boast in that? We all find a way. I mean, it's just a weird example, but it's right in the Bible, so it's a good one to use. In the New Testament, Paul had to deal with whole churches that would boast in the fact that they circumcised their boys, that the men were circumcised. They were boasting in it. We'll take anything that we can lift up as a reason for pride. In the end, what it does is it replaces God. We boast in it. We replace God with our our identity, our, our tribe, you know, it will be all kinds of stuff. These days it won't be, you know, circumcision, won't be, it won't be such things, but it will be our political positions. It'll be the virtue signaling that we do on, on social media. Well, I don't, I, you know, I'm of this group. I'm of that group. I, I tweet the right things. I retweet the right people. I belong to the right opinion on this. I voted the right thing. You didn't. 
That's, that's the kind of way we express it now. It's, it's in that, or it's maybe, like I said, through a theological position. It could be, very, it could be even something weird like, I, I would say even strange things like people who get into the desire for churches to be united. We want unity in this church. We want real unity. I want, real, I want people to be truly united. I notice that you don't. That's like, what? I remember having letters through my door once when I was an elder in a different church in a different town. People put stuff through my door anonymously saying, basically, you know, accusing me of not being very into unity. Thinking, that isn't a good way to express that. <laughs> so you're really into unity, anonymous, nasty letters. It's weird, isn't it? We'll find different ways, and sometimes the most ironic ways of, of expressing our kind of superiority, self-righteousness. And in this case, it's, you know, we are David's tribe. In the end, it wasn't out of love for David. You could see that by the fact that as soon as someone suggests it, they're happy to split with David. It's not actually about David. It never was. It's not actually about Jesus. It never was for some people. It never was. It was about looking better than other people. I think of somebody who was a preacher walking down the streets in Belfast talking to strangers about the love of Jesus, trying to help them to get to know him. And you know what it would be like in Northern Ireland? People come back with similar kinds of reaction all the time. They'd say to him things like, are you Protestant or Catholic? He'd say, yeah, I want to talk to you about Jesus. Okay, are you Protestant or are you Catholic? And he said to one person, well, I just, I, I just love Jesus. I want you to get, I want to tell you about Jesus. This person said, is he Protestant or is he Catholic? <laughs> so, so, so it's like, you, you get the point. It's, this is what we do. And, and what I'm saying, friends, is you, if you find anything in your life, even something that you thought was part of your worship of Jesus, maybe it's a social cause, maybe it's a, a justice issue, maybe it's a political issue, maybe it's a, whatever it is, and you've hoisted it up to being rival with Jesus, be careful that it doesn't eat up Jesus in your heart. Because it can, it will. That does happen. People drift and churches disintegrate because people miss Jesus. They get obsessive about the wrong stuff. That's definitely what's happening here in this story. I like the way Paul deals with this in Corinth where he, he writes to a church that's definitely in the, the, the verge of disintegration as people are picking teams and they're, they're choosing their favourite leaders and their favourite voices, their favourite teachers in the church and it's getting into, into something hostile and kind of tribal in this church in Corinth and Paul has to tear them on this he has to speak into it in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 2 and 3 and at the end of chapter 3 he puts it like this let no one boast in men for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So he's saying, you guys, you're boasting and fighting. Why? Because you're utterly insecure. You really think it matters that your team wins in this situation, that you look better, that you come out strong. You really care about that. You shouldn't care because you have Christ. You're in Jesus. You don't need to be better. You don't need to win because you already have one. You have everything in Christ. And all these people you're fighting over, well, they're a gift from God to you. That's how you should see them, not as sticks to hit people with, but God's kindness to you. 
God's grace to you. By God's grace, life is yours. By God's grace, even death is yours. Even death in a weird way, in a weird way, is like a friend to you. How? Because even when you die, you get to be with him. (laughs) You can't lose. You can't lose in life. You can't lose in death. You can't lose in the future. You can't lose in the present. You can't. And all these these fights are irrelevant. You're, You're so secure. What is the problem when we fall into disintegration? We've taken our eyes off what we already have in Jesus and we get insecure. We do. And it happens today just as it happens with these tribes before David. It definitely happens with this, this man, Sheba. And I want to look at him in the second part. So it starts with tribolatry. It goes on to what I'd call futility. Futility. You see it at the beginning of chapter 20. Again, that verse where it talks about Sheba and it says, we have no portion in David. That's his big announcement. That's it. That is his big moment. That is his big flag wave. That's it. That's all he's got on his website. We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. That's his hashtag. No portion. No inheritance. That's a feeble message. All he's saying is basically, that's all he's saying. He's nothing to say. There's nothing. That's why it says a worthless man called Sheba. A worthless man. A guy who sees no value in anything. A guy who looks at everything and sees right through it. And we sometimes respect people like that who, who are good at seeing through everything. I've seen through it. I've seen through it. I'm too clever. I'm too cool. I've seen through it. Oh, no, I've seen through your message. I've seen through this advertisement. I've seen through that trailer. I've seen through this movie. I've seen all the holes. I've seen through it. I read the book. I've seen the movie. I've got the T-shirt. I've been there. I've seen it. I've seen it. I see through it. It's a problem. If you see through everything, in the end, you'll see nothing. And that's the problem for many of us. We, in the end, get to the point where we see nothing. There's nothing of value in the world. So we just tear down. We just tear everything down. Everything, everything. Just pull it down. I don't like David. Why? I don't know. I just don't like him. Don't like him. Why? Well, I don't trust him. I don't want to follow him. I don't want a leader. I don't want a king. I don't want a shepherd. I don't want a ruler. I want to be free. Maybe that's his vision. He just wants individual freedom. Maybe that's what it's all about with Sheba. If so, he's a very Brightonian guy, don't you think? He's a very 21st century Bible character. To your tents, O Israel. That's it. Just go back to your own tents. Go back to your own, your own individual world, your own individual agenda. Don't follow leaders. You don't need leaders. You just need yourself. No portion in David. No inheritance in the son of Jesse. Here's the thing, Sheba could not be more wrong if he tried. That's the irony of this. When you read that the, the story of the Bible teaches, you see that actually the, the promises of God over David are kind of holding the world together. <laughs> That's not an exaggeration. God's plan for the world well, it's, it's, you could get to even places where it explicitly names him as the son of Jesse. So it's funny to me. Sheba derogatorily says, 
oh, this son of Jesse. Jesse's a nobody from Bethlehem. We have no inheritance with the son of Jesse. He's nothing to us. Can anything good come out of Nazareth or Bethlehem? You know, these, these nobodies, we don't, we don't want to follow him. In the Bible, God in Isaiah chapter 11 says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand into the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. I could read on. You get the image. God's going to recreate everything and make it right. He's going to make the world perfect. He's going to restore it and beautify it and glorify it and set it up as the kind of radiant sapphire of creation that he always intended. And how is he going to do it? Through a, a son from Jesse, through David's family. David's the guy that's carrying the promises of the world. He's going to have Jesus come from his sons. So when this, this worthless man says, oh, David, just, you know, he, who is he anyway? He couldn't be more spiritually blind. He's totally missed it. And his message is just this completely nothingy, dead message of, well, just, just believe in yourself. Just quit and just split. Just, who, who needs to be part of, of the people of God? Just go your own way. Just disintegrate. It's blindness, spiritual blindness. And friends, I see it now. I see it in Christians so often who, who don't see the value of being part of God's people, who don't see the wonder of belonging to Jesus and the promises that God has made his son Jesus for the whole world. The thing that God is doing through his son and through the people of his son to bring transformation to the world is the thing to be part of, the church of Jesus Christ. It's such a privilege, such a glorious privilege to be part of it. But this guy misses it massively, completely misses it. It's crazy to think of, but people do. We can be blind. We can be distracted. I think of, well, what do you think of what happened on Good Friday. What happened on that day? When a crowd of thousands gathered outside the, the procurator of, of Jerusalem's palace, the Roman governor, was given the choice to either let an innocent carpenter from Galilee who had done nothing but good for three and a half years of public life to either let him go free or instead to let a bandit go free, a guy called Barabbas who was a known murdering terrorist, basically, a thief 
and a violent man. And they've got the choice. Who are you going to set free? Well, we all know. What's the reasonable choice? Well, people aren't stupid. They'll make the reasonable choice, won't they? Of course, they'll set the right one free. They'll set Jesus free because that's what reasonable people do. And we're all reasonable. So that's what we expect from reasonable people. But here's the thing. When it comes to Jesus, our reason can jump out the window. And it does. It's like with compasses. You get them to the actual place where it's magnetic north and they go crazy. Do you know that? They just go, we whir around. It's like, that's like the human heart. The closer we get to the real Jesus, the more we just freak out. And we dismiss him and we replace him and we go our own way. We might be right about everything else. We might be right about mobile phones and about, about the, the weather and about how to fix people's kidneys and, and, and give people good, good, good medicine and how to, how to make people have a nice life and fix the economy. We might be good at everything except Jesus. When it comes to Jesus, we'll pick Barabbas every time. Why? Because there's something in us that doesn't want God's king. We don't want his king. We want to be kings. We don't want to be shepherded. We want to be sheep who can go somewhere else. We like the idea of freedom too much. We don't want the king that God has given us. We want our own kingdoms. That's our problem. And the striking thing when you read the story, read on, we not, we've not got time to go into it for today. We'll look at it later. The story goes on and Israel keeps behaving like a bunch of sheep in this situation. Even the way you do see it in this part of the story that I read to you, it's just one guy comes along and says, blows the trumpet, blah, blah, blah. right, I think we should all give up on David. Oh, yeah, yeah, let's do that. And, and, and yet, interestingly, Sheba says, Every man to his tent. So that's his message. Just no leaders, no king, forget it. (laughs) But then the next verse, verse 2. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba. Because that's what sheep do, isn't it? It says in Isaiah 53, we have all, like sheep, gone astray. We've all gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But when you think about it, have you ever seen a field full of sheep going their own way, each one? Well, no, they don't. They do go their own way, but their own way is always where everyone else is going. That's what sheep do. They go where everybody's going. Don't we do that? We make our decisions about Jesus and about the church and about God based on what's she doing? What are they saying? What's the thing that everybody's doing? Don't we? We like to imagine that we're really reasonable and really making our own call. But friends, let's be honest. We are massively influenced by the herd, by the flock. Surely what we need is a shepherd who will lead us well. Because like it or not, you will be led by someone. Even if you say you won't, even if it's a good Brightonian, you say, no, I don't, I, no, 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 I'm different. No, I don't follow anybody. I just follow myself. Okay, well done. You followed the, uh, the, current, the current idea of selfism. You're you following individualism. No, 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 you can't put that on me. No, 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 I'm just following myself. Yeah, where did you get that idea from? You got that idea from lots of movies and songs and plays and ideas where, where that idea of following yourself is touted as a religion almost. 
Everybody's following some opinion that's handed down. Everybody, the question, friends, isn't whether you serve someone. You're going to serve someone. The question is who? The question is who gets to shepherd you? Is it going to be a Sheba whose message is nothing? Or is it going to be the shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep? That's the only question in the end. You need to find the good shepherd that God provides. David was a good shepherd. Jesus was a better one. David at his best moments only ever points to Jesus anyway, right? Jesus is the shepherd that comes to find you in your lostness, in your brokenness, in your failure and mistakes. And he lays his life down for you, brings you back into his flock, into his fold. He couldn't be a better shepherd. He couldn't deserve your trust more completely. Let me just talk about one more thing that kind of applies this. It's a bit of a gear shift, but it's just for a few minutes before we finish to help us apply this to our own lives. So there's that weird verse you might have noticed as we were reading it in, in chapter 20, verse 3. This is a bit strange. And we've been noticing this word come up a few times if you've been with us in recent weeks, the word concubine, which is a fun word. If you've got kids and they ask you what's a concubine, and you say, well, it's a prickly animal. <laughs> David came to his house at Jerusalem. The king t- took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death living as if in widowhood. Why is that there? Weird verse, don't you think? In the middle of the story about rebellion, what? I think here's the point of this verse. You see, the kings of Israel, and you look at the Psalms and some other bits in the Bible, they're kind of portrayed as like husbands to their nation, caring for the bride, for the people who are kind of seen as a, a bride. And the, the, the king is the groom. And it's that kind of arrangement in, in poetic sense. It's the metaphor they use. Only David shamefully had done really badly in this area. This is one of the things he got very wrong. We know that because he slept with Uriah's wife Bathsheba and then killed Uriah when she fell pregnant. It's his worst, most wicked thing probably. But that wasn't his only failure. He failed in that way because he'd already failed. He'd already taken many wives and concubines. In the Middle East, it's basically mistresses. It would be normal in ancient Eastern monarchies for the king to have a harem, basically a whole bunch of chosen women there for his sexual appetites. That was just normal. David and maybe his advisors, they got together and they said, we've noticed that these other kings have a harem. They have them. You're a king. You should have them. And apparently that was enough for David. Just thought, well, let's do what the world does. When it comes to sex, what does the world do? What do the kings around here do? Do what they do. Should have looked at the second page of his Bible. What does God have to say about sex? Genesis chapter 2. A man and a woman, perfect, faithful, covenant union, joined as one. Fruitful, raising children together, loving one another, keeping their promises till they die. 
enjoying sex, enjoying the whole wonder of sexuality in all of its colour, all of its beauty, all of its gratification to the glory of God. Absolute worship, absolute delight, absolute enjoyment of God's gift of sex. Instead, he played with fire. That's what you're doing when you play with sex. You really are. In this place in the book of Proverbs, I was reading it to my kids recently, where it talks about scooping fire into your lap and saying, I won't be burned. It's just stupid to play with sex. This is what I want to touch on as the last thing. It's the sexual idiocy that you see in David's life. But you don't just see it in David. You see it again and again and again. And whenever you see it, it disintegrates society. Friends, it eats away like acid. When we play around with sex, when we, when we have a little harem in our mind, you might not have one literally, but you can have a harem on your phone. You can have a harem on Tinder. You can have a harem just on websites you know that you don't even name. You could be just doing, doing this without any intention of covenant loyalty not even for a moment considering faithfulness to a, to a husband or a wife forever and ever, right up until you die, raising the children, committed to one family. David had so many wives, he had loads of kids from different wives. He didn't have one good marriage, not one. You look through the whole book of Samuel, you can't find one good marriage. It's a big book, not one good marriage. Women are treated badly, children are treated awfully. Sons are raised, they're not raised, frankly, they're just not. And so they ransack the nation and cause destruction. Why? Because we cannot play with fire and expect it to go well. It's the same today, friends, if you think, well, I suggest this is casual. It doesn't matter, it's just my sex life. I knew you'd be like this in church. You're always interested in what, what I'm doing with my body. Why does that matter to you? That's private. I, I wish it was private. I wish it was. I wish you were right. I wish that your sexual behaviour made no difference to anyone else. But I'm afraid, my friend, that's just not true. Even porn. That's just me and my phone. That's just me and my laptop. It's not true at all. It's not. It's rubbish. Do you know that 20%, they did a survey, National Society uh, did a special survey in 2013 in in the States, an organisation looking into the recruits into the porn industry, 20% 20% are trafficked children. 20%. Porn's nothing. That's just, that's just me. It's just me. It's just me and my personal time. My friend, it's not. You're cutting up society. You're cutting up kids' lives. You're buttressing an industry that hurts people. You don't play with the dials on a submarine and expect it to carry on moving in the right direction. Society's going to keep messed up as long as sex is messed up. It's not just me and my body. God's given us a design because he loves us. He gave us sex because he loves us. He gave us fire and he said, here's a fireplace. Here's a a hearth. Here's Here's a room. Here's heat for the house. Enjoy. Be blessed. Have family. Have kids. Multiply. Fill the earth. Be happy. We said, you don't know how to make me happy. I'll play with the fire. You couldn't be more wrong. Idiocy. So what's the solution? See, David's solution in this story is kind of, well, 
I did it wrong. I, I got it wrong. So let's just shut this room off. Let's just put these women into widowhood. Let's never have anyone sleep with them. Let's never have anyone talk with them. Let's, let's just close them away and pretend nothing happened here. Just cover the shame, pretend it never happened. See, this is David failing to be like his greater son. Because that's the best he can do, I suppose. What else can David do? He's failed as much as anyone else. What can he do for them? It was left to, to the greater David, David's son, to do what no one else could do, be the husband that David couldn't be for his people. This is what Paul means in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. God's way of dealing with our sexual brokenness and shame and failure, all the stuff that I know I'm touching the buttons of as I talk about this today in this room and talk to people on video, I know whenever we talk about this stuff, it's raw for us. It's not small, it hurts us because... We all feel, many of us, like, oh, that's a painful part of my life. Or maybe somebody did something to you and it feels, you feel kind of shameful about it. Or there's, It's a tough area. I know it's painful. We live in a city with many people very broken, very hurt in the whole area of sex. So what do we do? Do we just shut it up, close this wing of the house off? Don't let's talk about it. No. We have a better husband than that. We have a saviour who's so committed to our purity, to our future, to our cleanness, to our hopes, to our comfort, to our forgiveness, that he laid down his life for us so that he might present his bride as pure, spotless, radiant. Not one single person here needs to go home feeling ashamed. Not one because somebody took our shame on the cross. And you need him. I need him so much. You need, we all need him as our true heavenly husband to take away the shame, to give us a future and a hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his salvation. And we pray that you would help us to live in the good of it freely, in every way, and to be the people who don't disintegrate <coughs> but stay solid and strong, serving you, standing for you, radiant as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.